Well, the title of this morning's sermon is A Faithful Exception, A Faithful Exception. And I commonly observe in our studies together that the Bible is a book of contrasts, a book of contrasts. And today's passage represents another great example of this principle. And so you think about the things that are going to be contrasted today. They're going to be faithful and unashamed, and they're going to be contrasted with unfaithful and ashamed. So those are the things that are contrasted in this passage this morning. Faithful compared to or contrasted with unfaithful, and then we have unashamed contrasted with being ashamed, which is, again, these are opposites. They're contrasted with each other. Now, as you think about those two particular sets of contrasts and, or a way of comparing them or the way they're compared by Paul in this letter to Timothy, there are specific people that are used to represent the two contrasting categories. So we have, again, the category of faithful and unashamed, and there's going to be a person that is used to represent that category. And then we have the category of unfaithful and unashamed, and there's going to be two people who are specifically called out as an example of that category, in addition to, generally speaking, everyone else in that particular region that we'll look at. So we have two men that are listed as representative of the negative response of a, of a whole region. So it says the whole region kind of responds this way, but there's two people in particular that are singled out. And then one man is listed as, a rep, as representative of a faithful exception to that majority response. So the majority response in this region is to turn away, to ha- be ashamed, to be unfaithful, And again, two people are given as particular examples of that. And then one person is lifted up as a faithful exception to the norm, an exception to the rule. And and you think about that. They're called out by name, these three individuals, two on the wrong side of it, one on the right side of it. But the one on the right side of that, imagine that you're standing as an exception as such a stark exception to, to saying everyone else went the other direction with this. But, but one person decided or determined to trust the Lord enough so that the Lord could work in his life that he would be faithful, that he'd be useful, that he could stay the course, run the race that was set in front of him. And it's my perspective that Paul is talking about believers in all of these instances, not believers contrasted with unbelievers, that Paul is actually talking about a region filled with believers of which there's many local churches that have been established and Paul has had a hand in a lot of it as a lot of them were founded starting with Ephesus and then spreading out throughout that region of Asia. And a lot of them had direct influence or were influenced by the time that Paul spent in that region. We know he spent approximately three years in Ephesus alone and then you think about the time that Timothy spent there who he's writing this letter to. So there's a whole region that has had an impact. They're believers that he's talking about, but except for this one exception, Paul says they've all abandoned me. They've all turned away. So as you're thinking about this, it's interesting that this is the only time that any of these three individuals are mentioned or discussed in the word of God. So this particular section is the only time they're talked about and they're talked about as representative of a response of faith or a response that lacks faith. And it's maybe unfair, or maybe it is fair, but that's how they're forever going to be remembered because this is the only time their names are recorded in the Bible. So that's what they'll be known for. And as I thought about that, I thought about, you know, how are we going to be remembered? How how are we going to be known 
as we go forward or as others look back at, at us in our lives. See, when you think about the one option that's representative of the minority, in fact, a single exception, but that's not exactly what Paul means. He's, he's using hyperbole there to some extent. But as you think about the one positive option, it pleases God and it represents him. It, it, it represents a response that he can honor. It represents a response that he can reward. And so that's another thing that we'll touch on here this morning. But the other does not. So we have these two contrasting options, faithful, unfaithful, ashamed, unashamed. One is one that can please God, a response that can please God. One is a response that God can honor and reward in the future. And one is one that he cannot. So as we consider these two alternatives, the thing I found myself asking myself was, which describes my life? Which, which presently would describe me? Which category would I fall into at the moment? And I would ask you to ask yourself that as we go through this section. So let's take a closer look here. Second Timothy chapter one. If you haven't turned there already, we're gonna pick up in verse 15 and go through the end of this chapter. Let's read it so we have sort of the kind of the full context of our section here. This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. So we're going to contrast these different individuals here in these verses. We start with verse 15 here though. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but say it however, say it to yourself and see what you come up with. Phygelus, Phygelus, Hermogenes, I think is pretty close. So we're looking at this verse. This is, of course, one of the options. This, this is one of the options that's available all of the time to every believer as they make decisions about, am I going to trust the Lord or not? Am I going to be faithful to serve him or not? Am I going to be a light for him or am I not? What is my response going to be to this day that the Lord has given me? So we, we wake up in the morning and we withdraw another portion of time from our account, which is finite, which has a limited amount in it, which is our greatest resource, which is our most valuable resource, which we have no idea how much is left in it, but we make a withdrawal of some more time that will, let's just say, equal this day that's in front of us. Then we have a choice to make. How are we going to use that time? How are we going to spend that time? And each of us throughout the day, it's not a moment, momentary decision in the morning that then lasts or kind of carries through the rest of the day. It's we have to make that decision repeatedly throughout the day as we're spending that resource that we can never get back. We don't know how much there is. We know it's the most precious thing that we have. We, don't, we know we can't get it back and we're spending it constantly as we're breathing air in and out of our lungs. And it's so easy to just fall into sort of a, a pattern of just going through life just breathing, breathing those breaths in and out without any thought about what we're really doing and how we can never get that time back and just going through the motions. 
And so the real encouragement, like if I'm already starting to lose you, the real encouragement here this morning is don't waste the time that God has given you. Don't, don't go through life just going through the motions, just watching life fade away and watching life pass you by, just counting down the ticks on the clock till you either die of, of natural causes or, frankly, I guess, unnatural causes if you die or the Lord returns what a way to spend the time that God has given you. He said, I'm giving you this great treasure and I want you to use it wisely. So in any event, we look at this example of those who did not redeem the time. They didn't make the right choices because they didn't trust God. They weren't faithful in this particular moment. Now, we don't know how this all turns out and we'll touch on that in a second. This isn't just because this happens to be true in this moment doesn't mean it has to forever be true of these that are mentioned here. So we start with the negative here and then we're going to move to the positive. These are the, this is the example of the negative here though. But it doesn't have to be true indefinitely. It doesn't necessarily even represent what was true in the past. Perhaps in the past they had been trusting the Lord. Perhaps in the past they had been bold for Jesus Christ. Perhaps in the past they had been unashamed of the gospel of Christ. Perhaps in the past they had been faithful. But now they're not. And that's what we read about here. This you know, Paul says to Timothy, that all those in Asia have turned away from me. Among whom, here we have Phygelus or Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now all those in Asia have turned away from me all refers to everyone or the entire or whole of something. But this probably, like I said in the introduction, should be taken as an expression that is utilizing her hyperbole to some extent. It's just an expression of how it appears to the Apostle Paul in his time of need. It's a generalization of the response as a whole that took place in this, in this region. We, we already know that this, there's not just one example of somebody who was faithful because at the end of this letter, he's going to say to greet a bunch of people who are in this region that clearly he's not identifying as those are who are making the wrong choice, who are in opposition, who are presently being unfaithful, who are presently ashamed of the gospel. So when you go to chapter four of this letter, you're gonna see a number of names mentioned. Obviously, he's writing to Timothy, who's in this region, in Ephesus, probably serving in some role as a pastor in this, in this, in this area. And then on top of that, we're gonna have the one example that's given of somebody who has done the opposite, who, who didn't turn away, who remained faithful, who was not ashamed of the gospel. So, so take this as a literary de device that is just being used for em the sake of emphasis where he wants to say this has been the general response of this region. Now in Asia it refers to a province within the Roman Empire, not the continent of Asia. And as you think, just a couple of things about this area. Ephesus was the capital of this Roman province. Paul, again I had mentioned earlier, had spent approximately three years there on his third missionary journey. Timothy ministered with and accompanied Paul for much of his ministry, including ministry to this region. Timothy was currently in Ephesus, and that's where Paul is writing to him. This letter of 2 Timothy, as Paul is facing imminent execution at the end of his life. So that's sort of the setting of this. There were several churches that were established in Asia, the New Testament, as far as I could find, mentions approximately nine of them. You have Ephesus, you have Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossae, 
and Hierapolis. Some of those are mentioned as the seven churches that God is talking about in Revelation as representative, representative churches. And so you think about there's a number of different outflow that has happened, and as I understand the history of it, it starts primarily in Ephesus as Paul went through there, and then the gospel sort of spreads out from Ephesus to some of these other places in that region. But that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is that all that are in that region have turned away from me, turned away from me. You notice it doesn't say they've turned away from the gospel. It doesn't say they were never saved. He's talking about believers, and so he's, he's talking about how they've turned away from me. They have, they have been ashamed of the gospel and that has caused them to be ashamed of his, bond, his, his bonds that he's in or the chains that he's in. We'll see that in a second. So Paul never identifies the specifics of what this rejection entailed, but turned away represents the physical response that accompanies rejection. And so, as you think about the word, as you reject something, then that's an internal mental response, and then the physical response is to physically turn away from something. That's, that's why even as you think about turning back to the Lord, it's not the turning back to the Lord that's the primary issue. The primary issue when you've turned away from the Lord is to have a change of thinking. As you change your mind and as you change your perspective and your attitude and your thinking, then you'll you'll have a physical response of turning back to the Lord in in a sense that now you're going to be walking as directed and led by him. So often people put the focus on how you're walking and how you're being directed and how you're being led instead of the mentality that would, would be necessary for that to happen, which is you're going to have to be trusting God. You're going to have to be convinced that he knows more than you do. You'll have to be convinced that he's good that he's faithful, that he's loving, that he's worthy of your faith and he's worth trusting. That's only going to be happening as you're learning more about him, you're focused on him, you're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. As you're looking and have that vertical mindset, God is going to reveal himself to you in a greater and greater measure so that you will learn to trust him more and more. And as you're trusting him more and more, then he'll be able to have his way in your life because he has his way in your thinking. That's why when Paul talks or no, John talks about, no, it is Paul, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind, it starts with your thinking. And so often we're focused on our actions, we're focusing on the outflow, but it starts with the internal response to the Lord. So we have this idea of this is the physical response that accompanies an internal rejection. Now Paul is saying, you've turned away from me. But Paul never identifies again ex- exactly what the specifics of that are. At a, minimum, at a minimum, support was lacking in some fashion. It likely, inverve, it likely involved turning away from the truth that was taught by Paul. So it's not just that they weren't supporting him, but there was probably some aspect of turning away from what he was teaching or the truth that he stood for, for which he was imprisoned. So as I'm turning away from that truth, I'm effectively turning away from him because that's what he's standing for. Now look at, in your Bibles, look at verse 13. And you get a sense here that it is the truth that he is teaching that is in fact what they're abandoning or what they're turning away from because he's saying to Timothy, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. 
as you respond in faith, as you have the love of God's spirit flowing in your life or as an outflow of you, as you're seeing that love then even be a love for people, you need to have a perspective that you're holding fast to what you were taught, what you heard from me. And so that's the opposite of turning away. It's holding fast and clinging to, staying in proximity to this thing that others apparently are turning away from. Now, this is consistent with a general sense of abandonment that Paul experienced and felt toward the end of his life here. Turn a few pages to your right to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, it's up, up here on the screen, but since we're right here and we have our Bibles, let's turn there. 2 Timothy 4, 16. Many of you are aware of this. verse, but it's a carryover of the same idea. He says that at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. Now, what's Paul's perspective, though? May it not be charged against them. He still has a perspective that people, human, human beings who are not trusting the Lord, respond with an unfaithful response, with a response of turning away and response of abandonment. But Paul loves these individuals that, are, that have had that response. His prayer for them isn't that God would somehow punish them or come down heavy on them, but that God would change their thinking, that God would work with them and work in their lives to convince them to turn back to the Lord. But again, this phrase here, all those in Asia have turned away from me, very similar to what you see there in 4.16, this general sense of abandonment that Paul is experiencing as he's in prison, real prison, not house arrest like he had been previously for two years in Rome. Now, a dark, dank Roman prison cell having already been tried and sentenced to be executed, he felt more abandonment from people there than he did in any other time in his life. But if you kept, if you kept going, that's a little bit too somber of a place to start, stop. I was going to stop there, but I can't. So let's go back there. I already turned away. That's pretty dark, isn't it? That's sad to think of that, that he's feeling that at such, a, at such a place in his life. But let's read the next verse because there's hope here. So no human being stood with me. They all forsook me. Then he says in verse 17, but. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, which is why I came back to it. But the Lord stood with me. See, no one, no one else stood with me, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear as I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Now, there's a lot of different perspectives on that. But that's not the point. The, the main point to focus in on there is though human beings may fail us, though, like we sing in the song, The Eye of the Storm, though our friends and our family may let us down, the truth is that God is always faithful. God is always present. God is always near. God never forsakes us. He never leaves us. He never forgets about us. We have that comfort, and Paul found that comfort even in the face of human abandonment. Some of you have been abandoned at different times in your life in more profound ways than others. Some of you have had, well, all of you have had, you know, friends leave you, friends abandon you, friends that have been lost along the way. 
Many of you have had failed relationships of various uh, kinds. Some of you have been abandoned by family. Some of you have been abandoned by your own parents. Some of you have been uh, abandoned by people that you looked up to, uh, people in your life like coaches and teachers and uh, spiritual leaders even in this church maybe have let you down or abandoned you or you felt like you were forsaken by them. But if you were God's child, he never forsook you. He never abandoned you. He was there through all of it, whether or not you were trusting him or leaning on him or resting in him, finding comfort and peace and joy and hope in him in those moments or not. He was there. And he's always been there. And he always will be there. So that's a great reminder, even as we're thinking about what Paul is going through here now. That's not the point of our lesson here this morning, so we need to keep moving. But considering the immediate context, Paul effectively, he likens this turning away, not just to turning away from the truth, which is, I think, a part of it that we saw in verse 13 there, but also he likens this turning away from him to ultimately being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're still in the first chapter here. Look back at verse 8. Because turning away from him, he's already said is synonymous with turning away from or being ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now verse 8 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. So I think there's some sense here if we look at the immediate context that what Paul is talking about as they're turning away, they're not willing, he's saying, they're not willing to suffer persecution for the name of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the gospel, like I've been willing to. So they've, they've turned away from me, in a sense, by just not partnering with me or aligning with me in staying the course and being faithful to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ in the face of opposition, in the face of challenge, in the face of adversity, in the face of persecution. They're not willing to do that. And so in a sense, I see that the first and foremost issue here is they're forsaking the gospel of Jesus Christ because the testimony of our Lord, what is the testimony of our Lord? It's the proclamation, testifying is to proclaim the proclamation of the message of hope, the message of who Jesus is and what he's done for a lost and dying world. His death, burial, and resurrection in the place of, his payment in the place of sinners. And so in doing that, if that is being opposed, that would make them a fellow prisoner for Jesus Christ, a fellow sufferer for the sake of the gospel. But he's saying all, again, as a general rule, all those in Asia have turned away from me. And I think there's an essence there of it's not just that they've decided they don't like Paul anymore. I think the essence is they've turned away from the, the truth that he was teaching. They've turned away from the gospel. They've been unwilling to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. And he's equating that to they're not supporting the mission and in doing that they're not supporting me even in my time of trial. Now, there could be any different other ways you could take that. I think that generally speaking, he has, Paul is in a time of need and he's not feeling their support but I think it goes beyond that they're not writing him enough letters. I, I, th I think it goes beyond that he thinks they're not praying for him enough. I think, I think the reports that he has or the understanding he has is that they're not staying the course. They're not finishing the race like he's intending to finish his race with boldness. Now, he's gonna call out two people, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Phygelus or Gelus and Hermogenes. Now, the representative examples of those who have turned away, but it's, remember, it's this whole region 
that's being described as having this response. Now, Paul, he doesn't explain why he calls them out by name, but yet he calls them out by name. Nothing else is known about these two individuals because this is the only time they're mentioned in the word of God. I would say that it's fair to conjecture that their turning away may have been the most unexpected or painful. Perhaps they had previously been quite loyal or they had worked in real close proximity in the ministry to the Apostle Paul and so he's sort of staggered that, they're, that they have turned away. Maybe they were even in, lead, in a leadership role in this region. Maybe they were even pastors in this region. Maybe they, were, maybe they had been faithful servants with him as they established some of these other churches in the past. We'll never know. It, it would be it's speculation at, at best here to try to figure it out because he doesn't say. But when you think about why he would name two out of a whole region that I said there was at least nine churches that are identified in this region, I have to think that there was some strong personal connection between Paul and these individuals or perhaps their turning away had been more painful or more, uh, had a, neg- a greater negative impact on the truth than others. Perhaps they had actually become, became the types of individuals that were proclaiming something different than what Paul had taught previously. But there's nothing to indicate that they renounced their faith completely. The indication is that they, along with many others, failed to support Paul in his time of need and were unfaithful to the mission by becoming ashamed of the gospel and by extension, Paul. I think in the context of this first chapter, you have to you have, to have sort of that general takeaway that there's something here when you're talking about they haven't been faithful, they haven't been unashamed. You see that again by looking at what we saw here in verse 8 and then even verse 13. So that's what we have there. That's why he's calling them out. That's one possibility. If we think about these options that we have for how we're going to go about or how we're going to live our life, what our walk is going to look like, our, our manner of living is going to look like, what it's going to entail. It could be this. It could be this. It could be having a way of life, a way of living that could be described by God or could be described by even the Apostle Paul were he to be living in our time as turning away from him, turning away from the gospel, abandoning the mission. That's one option. And as you think about it, we all know that if we're being honest and there's very little honesty in our lives, because the flesh doesn't want to be confronted with the truth. The flesh is in a perpetual state of wanting to convince us to live in delusion. The the flesh is in a perpetual state along with Satan in the world of trying to deceive the believer. Now certainly everyone, unbelievers as well, but wanting to deceive the believer. So internally we have the self-deception that's taking place as fueled by the the flesh, the old sin nature. Wanting to get us to believe that something is different than it really is. Because if we can live in a fantasy world, if the flesh can convince us and if, if Satan externally can deceive us, the chief deceiver, deceiver from the very beginning, if, and he's the father of this world, so if the world following the lies of Satan himself can deceive us externally and the sin nature can deceive us internally and convince us to live in a fantasy where we have this perspective that we're doing so much better than we are and if we won't let the word of God cut us to the core and remind us of where we're really at so that we can constantly be reminded, I need you, I need you every 
hour I need you. I can't do this apart from you. No, I'm not strong enough to do this without you, Lord. No, I'm not going to thrive when I'm not including you in my life, when I'm not experiencing intimacy with you in my life. No, I can't do this on my own. That nine out of ten times as I'm going through life, if I'm not careful, I'm actually going to be deceived into thinking that one thing is true when it's not true. I mean, the number one issue that is facing the Christian is deception. It's, it's the idea of believing that something is different than it actually is. But when we're honest, when we sit down prayerfully and we say, like David would say, search me, O God. Know my thoughts. Know my heart. Reveal if there's anything, there's any hidden wickedness in me. Let, let me know that that's true, God, so I won't be operating in this state of deception, in, in this state of fantasy, I can, I can at least be in a place of reality and honesty where I can say, Lord, I see that now. Thank you for showing me that, Lord. Now, help me to trust you enough so that you can change me, that you can make changes in my thinking, you can make changes in my life, that you can tr- continue to work your work in me, to transform me into the image of your son. Because that work isn't done already, friends. That's a, that's a work in progress. And for some of us, it's stalled. It's, it's, it's very little progress. For some of us, when we're honest, we're going to say, I don't have very much, the joy of the Lord is not very present in my life. I have very little excitement about the things of faith. I am not persuaded in this moment that it's to live for Christ or die for nothing. I, I, I'm not persuaded in this moment that all that thrills my soul is Jesus or take the world but give me Jesus. Or I'd, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. We, we sing these songs, friends, but we sing them from a place of total delusion and fantasy very often because we're not actually honest enough to see the world has its claws in me. The, the sin nature never lets up. Satan never lets down his guard. This isn't to, I don't say this to get us to a place this morning where we all you know, hang our heads and walk out the door saying, man, What a flop and a failure I am. Thanks, Pastor, for reminding me of that. That's not the point. Victory is available. Joy is available. Peace is available. Trusting the Lord is available. The point is we can't appropriate that if we don't see that we need that. We can't grab a hold of that. We can't draw nearer to the Lord and chase after him, pursue after him, lean into him, have that intimacy with him if we think we already have it. So we have to be honest. Which of these two categories this morning do we fall into this moment? And do we have to stay there just because that's where we're at? Are we in a place where we are ashamed of the gospel, where we're living for self, where we're living for other things? If that's true, and if God shows that to us this morning, even maybe by virtue of this message, right? If he shows that to us, do we, do, do we just leave it be? The, the point is to, as God makes us aware of these things, to then trust him enough to let him make changes in our thinking. And then we could be described with this alternative that we're going to look at now, which is Onesiphorus, instead of these others. We, we don't need to be described as Phygelus and Hermogenes are described. We can be described in this way. So we see 2 Timothy 16, 
or sorry, yeah, chapter 116, just the first part of the verse says, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Now some of you are saying, how did this message work its way into this series about the prayers of Paul? Because this is a prayer. Because this is a prayer. See, by way of contrast, Paul now names Onesiphorus as a faithful exception to the previously mentioned abandonment and desertion, the previous turning away that was mentioned. So Onesiphorus is held up. Now, he's held up only here and one other time at the conclusion of this letter. That's the only time his name is mentioned, just like that was the only time Phygelus and Hermogenes were mentioned too. So what a way to be known. What a way to be remembered in God's eternal word as being faithful, as being one who is an exception to the rule, one who is not ashamed of the gospel, who is unashamed. So what does Paul say here? He says, the Lord grant mercy to his, Onesiphorus, his household. And it represents one of two specific prayer requests that Paul makes on behalf of Onesiphorus. So we look at this word, may, may the Lord or the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. So the prayer request is actually this one. It's not actually for Onesiphorus. It's for his household. This word mercy here generally refers to compassion expressed as an outflow of love toward another at a time of need regardless of whether he or she deserves it. I'll say that again. It refers to compassion expressed as an outflow of love toward another at a time of need regardless of whether he or she deserves it. So that is the New Testament definition of mercy. While this can take the form of leniency directed toward the guilty, that is not the focus of this term. It's been, in my opinion, one of the most misunderstood terms in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. Mercy is not just about leniency or God withholding judgment or something that somebody deserves. See, in the Old Testament, the word primarily used for mercy is hased, and it's, it's a word that means steadfast love, unfailing love. It it's, it's comes from a place of being motivated by love, and then it's focused more on, so that's the motivation, so that's not, it's not the same word for love, but it's in the same family because it talks about the expression of that love, and the expression of love is compassion. So what does compassion look like in a real, real life, in real terms, in real time? The expression of compassion looks like providing at a time of need for another regardless of whether or not they deserve it. So if we take God's kind of love, selfless, sacrificial love that is not based on merit and we apply it to this term, that's what we have. It's, it's the outflow of love is what we would talk about in terms of mercy, and it takes many different forms. Now, the prayer for his household and the instruction at the end of the book, so if you turn to chapter four, we look at the close to the book. This is the other time his name is mentioned. He's in verse 19, chapter four, verse 19. Paul says, greet Prisca and Aquila, and the household of Onesiphorus. So we have the household of Onesiphorus mentioned twice. So his name is mentioned twice, both in the context of his household. But what, what do we take away from this? Well, the Lord grant mercy, that compassion, compassionate outflow of love, that provision of, in, a, in a time of need, 
to his family, but why? What, what would the reason for that be? Well, we don't know exactly. At a minimum, though, it indicates that Onesiphorus is not presently there. He wouldn't be saying this about the household of Onesiphorus. If Onesiphorus was there, he'd be saying this to Onesiphorus directly. So he says, grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, meaning the takeaway there is he's not presently there. Now, apparently the rest of his household is there, and Paul seems to recognize the hardship, his absence, has had or is having or is causing his family. Now, there's several possible explanations for his absence, but they'd all be, they're all speculation. We have no idea exactly what they would be. One of them, the first one, is at least going to be reinforced by the next verse. The other would be just, you could say this could be possible, and that's all you could say about it. The first is he traveled to Rome to minister to Paul, so he wasn't currently there. So now he's writing to his family because Onesiphorus has actually traveled to see Paul. So he now knows he's faithful because he's come from that region. He's sought Paul out. He's ministered to Paul in Paul's time of need. And he's being held up as the exception of faithfulness for that whole region. Now, if he did that, then naturally he's not at home. And we're not talking about travel being easy in this, in this day. I should have probably put up a map. But go look up a biblical map and look at where Ephesus is as, as compared to Rome. And see the distance between the two and how difficult it would have been in that day for him to go travel to seek out Paul from Ephesus. Now Paul, being a rational-minded man, he'd say, man, that must have had a huge impact. It must have been a great sacrifice for his family if he went to minister to me in that way. So I actually lean that direction. Others say that this is a reference to the idea that he had died for any number of reasons, possibly even in service to the Lord. But really, I don't see that one as having as strong of, or any support really, other than just speculating that that's true. This, at least the first one, makes more sense to me, but it's not something that is even the focus here. There's no way to know for sure. Paul doesn't explain. Sometimes we have to just leave it at that. But what do we know here about Onesiphorus? What is said about him? Why is he held up as a faithful exception? Well, there's several things that are said about him. They come from, um, there's four of them specifically, but they come from here and one of them comes from the end of verse 18. So here's three of them from the last part of verse 16. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. So there's two. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and he found me. And the last one is at the end of verse 18. He ministered to me in many ways at Ephesus, we see. So as we're looking at it, Paul is now contrasting again Onesiphorus as a faithful example of those who have not turned away from him. And he's being illustrated as the, uh, an exception to the rule. He's the only one that's listed in this way. So we see Onesiphorus's commendable behavior being highlighted in comparison to the shame or the abandonment that the shame that Philegius and Hermogenes had towards Jesus Christ and Paul, and then the abandonment that came as a result of the mentality of being unfaithful. So the main point is this, of this is the contrast 
between faithful and unfaithful. It's not, it's not the reason Onesiphorus was not currently present in Ephesus. That seems to be true based on him saying, grant mercy to his household, but that's not the main point. The main point is that there's this contrast between those that are faithful, those who are unashamed, and those that are unfaithful and they're ashamed of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Now, these four specific examples, we already went through them here, are very powerful. He refreshed me. Now, he often did that, though. So it speaks to a pattern in his life of doing that. He was not ashamed of my chain in contrast to those that are and those that were. He sought me out very zealously and he found me when? Well, when he arrived in Rome. Where is Paul? In prison in Rome. That's how I understand it anyway. He sought me out very zealously and found me. How was that different? What's well, different than those who abandoned him and turned away from him, did not support him in his time of need? There's no better contrast than those who turn away versus the one who sets out on foot, likely, to track down the one who's in need. I, I mean, think of the two responses even in your own life. Consider that you are aware of another believer's need. You become, you become aware of some, something that someone's going through. And, and what are the options? Turn away from them in a sense, ignore it, or get in your car, lace up your tennis shoes, and fast track it to where they are, seek them out, as difficult as that apparently might have been, Find them and minister to them as God directs you. Now, is it going to be any benefit to you? Is it going to be any benefit to this church for us to make, you know, there used to be a saying that was said here in this church years back, love meets needs is the saying. Can that be true? The answer is yes. Very often is it true? Yes. Would God give you a compassion and a heart for people that you'd be seeking to be an instrument in his hands to minister to the one and others that he's put in your life who he's told, to love, he's told you to love like he loved the church? He's told you to love like in a sacrificial and servant-minded way? The answer is yes. Can you, can you make uh, something like that mechanical though? Can you make it a sense of obligation? Can you create whether you intended to or not, can you create a sense of obligation where all of a sudden it almost becomes an externally focused and externally motivated thing as it becomes sort of just a culture in a church to do this because it's what's expected instead of being the kind of thing that is motivated by a, res a response to the Spirit of God working in your heart, each person's heart individually? And the answer is, yeah, we gotta be careful about that. It won't, have any, God can't honor something that is wrought in the flesh, something that's done out of a sense of obligation. Oh, the Christian thing to do would be to do this, but it's not the Spirit of God that's leading you and directing you and motivating you in that way. It's not a response of love to the love that God has shown you. Then it has no, it doesn't have any value to you. It still might benefit that person, and they actually might even be encouraged by it because they won't know what your motives were, I guess. But it won't be of any benefit to you. 
And so something to be cautious about. All right. He sought me out very zealously and found me. And then he had a habit of this. Like this wasn't a one-off thing. And I want that to come out because as you look at the back half of verse 18, we'll, we'll get to the first half here. But he says, And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. This is, you don't all of a sudden start tying up your shoes when you hear about a, a believer's need and rushing off to go seek them out and help them. You don't do that as a genuine response to the Spirit of God working in your life all at once. You grow in your faith. You grow in your understanding and it becomes a pattern in your life where you're consistently being willing to be used of the Lord to not just think of your own needs, to not just be always focused on yourself and to start to have a mindset that considers the well-being of others. You have to learn that. You don't automatically have that perspective. The perspective that you were born with, the perspective that the flesh celebrates and promotes in your life, the perspective of the world is me first. I I minister to self above all else. God has to show you that's not his will for your life. That's not his desire for you. That's not his kind of thinking or perspective. He has to show you that. And he had done that in the life of Onesiphorus because years earlier when Paul had been ministering here to this congregation in Ephesus, apparently this man had been on the front line in in a sense of wanting to be a fellow worker working alongside of Paul and ministered to him in many ways at Ephesus. So what is Paul's second specific prayer request? Oh, it's a It's the first half here. Lord, grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. Lord, grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. So two prayer requests. That's why this is in our series about the prayers of Paul, although that's not even the primary idea here. The primary idea here is you have two choices. You have two options available, two categories of people, those that are faithful and those that turn away. Those that, those that are willing to be bold and be unashamed of the gospel and those who are ashamed of the gospel and turning away from the truth. And you've got to pick which one you're going to be. And, and unbeknownst to you, you may already naturally be in one camp and not even be aware of it. And so that's, that's the main point is, one, being prayerful about, Lord, show me, reveal to me where I'm at. Am I turning away or am I the one who is being faithful, a faithful exception in the face of so many that are unfaithful, in the face of a world that is diabolically opposed to the things of faith? Am I going to be found to be faithful? In any event, this is the second of the two specific prayer requests. The first one was for his family. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. The second one is the Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. Now, may find indicates that this is not automatic. Not automatic. That's what lends itself to my belief that in that day refers to the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat of Christ. We'll get to that in a second. Mercy from the Lord, again, refers to God's undeserved expression of compassion. Expression of compassion. One thing I want you to see, though, is that that term also can refer to a showing of favor to another, another take of it. Remember, compassion, or the term for mercy, is, is, the, is the expression of a love for somebody. So it's, the, it's, it's focused on the expression of love. And so as you think about that, at times, 
it can be to have favor, to show favor or bestow favor on another. Now, think about that in the context of the doctrine of rewards for the believer. That is what I believe this is referring to. So in that day, to me, is best understood as a reference to the Bema Seat of Christ. The Bema Seat of Christ. Now, this makes the most sense given the contextual focus on faithfulness. Contextual focus on faithfulness. That's what he continues to be contrasting here is those that are being faithful and those that are unfaithful. So now when he talks about that day, I believe he's referring to that day where every church-age believer will be evaluated at the Bema Seat of Christ and either receive rewards for faithful service or not receive rewards. Turn to 2 Timothy 4.8. We're already in 2 Timothy. I just want to show you that this is not a stretch to know that this day or that day probably as a reference to that as it's on Paul's mind. What is Paul close to? He's close to that day in a sense that this will of course occur after the rapture and before the second coming, but he knows his life is coming to an end. He knows that he will be evaluated. He talks about being confident that he will hear, well done thou good and faithful servant. He has a perspective about contrasting faithfulness with unfaithfulness. Now let's look at verse 8. Here it is up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And we're talking about a reward here. There's several types of reward that are, rewards that are discussed in the Bible, several types of crowns, which the Lord, the righteous judge, that term is, uh, is used to refer to this evaluation that will take place, will give to me on that day. There we have that day capitalized with a capital D again, just like it is in our passage. And not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Now he's talking about the receipt of rewards for those who are found to have been faithful in serving the Lord in this life. And so that's what I think the best way to take in that day is. Now what was a Bema seat? The Bema seat referred to the, the term itself, so some people say the judgment seat of Christ, but the word isn't judgment, it's, it, it's a Greek word called bima, and the bima or bema seat, depending on how you say it, it referred to a tribunal for rewards. It wasn't focused on judgment. In the large Olympic arenas, there was an elevated seat, which is what the actual word means, is a step up. The, the word itself at its core means a step up or a step above. So in the large Olympic arenas, there was an elevated seat on which the judge of the contest sat. Now after the contests were over, the successful competitors would assemble before the bima or bemas to receive their rewards or crowns. The bima was not a judicial bench where someone was condemned. It was a reward seat. And that's how we've understood the judgment seat of Christ as it's most, most commonly or historically been referred to or more, more recently the Bema seat evaluation is how I would put it. Now when will this occur? Well again I said sometime after the rapture and before the second coming it doesn't, I don't know anything more specific than that. If, if you do that's where I put it on the timeline and I think we historically have. Now who is going to be evaluated? Well church age believers are going to be evaluated. There's another evaluation that's discussed in reference to Old Testament believers where they will be evaluated and rewarded separately. But here we have a reference to church age believers here in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Again, that word judgment there is the Greek word bema seat, bema. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So all church 
Each believer will give an account of what they have done after trusting Christ as their Savior. See, what will be evaluated? What's going to be evaluated is what has been done after you trusted in Jesus Christ with the life that you had as a child of God. It was not, it's not designed to punish believers, but rather to reward them for their faithful service. In this context, we're talking about a faithful exception, and Paul is saying, may God show favor on him at this evaluation when rewards are handed out because Paul is pointing to all of these examples of faithful service that he's had in his life. Now here's a passage that is where we'll end, but it talks about this evaluation. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15 for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, we are in Christ, positionally we're in Christ. Our lives as Christians are lived in a sense in a footing or in a standing in Christ. Now, we're, gonna, we're put in a place where that's a starting point. Is we're, We've been saved, we've been born into God's family, we've been adopted, we've been sealed by the Spirit of God, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, we've been given a purpose and a direction for our lives. So now if anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation is Jesus Christ, with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, these are the options available, each one's work will become clear for the day, we're talking about the day again, this Bema Seed evaluation will declare it. It doesn't matter what other people think about it. These are the things that you could build with the substance of your life, the essence of your life. It could be gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, or straw. Now the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire or the evaluation of God himself. He doesn't, he's not going to be fooled by your motives or what was behind the way that you lived your life as a child of his. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. So the upside or the, what this is all about is the bestowing of rewards to faithful believers. Now if anyone's work is burned, meaning the time that they've spent, the work that they've done, it doesn't hold up to God's evaluation, he will suffer loss. Loss of what? Loss of rewards. This is not about punishment. Loss of rewards. He'll miss out on the rewards he could have gotten for being a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. But he himself will be saved, so as through fire, even though the evaluation uh, took place and it determined that there was nothing of essence, there was nothing of substance that had, be, had been done in his or her life. So we don't have time to go into more of an explanation of the, the doctrine of rewards, but that is the doctrine of rewards. You can read about it on our doctrinal statement a little bit more, uh, this idea that in that day, there's going to be a time when every believer is evaluated, and that's, in my opinion, that is what Paul is speaking to here in verse 18 when he's praying that the Lord would grant him favor or show him favor as an expression of his compassion for him based on the faithful service that Onesiphorus has demonstrated throughout his Christian life, and Paul is almost summarizing his life in some extent with these to some extent with these four phrases. Now we have a faithful exception. Remember there were two options. And which one are you? Faithful or unfaithful? There is the option of ashamed or unashamed. Which one are you? Now at any moment in any day, it could be one or the other. There's no guarantee that it, it, ha it doesn't have to be one or the other in the sense that you're not stuck with where you happen to be today. If you're honest, maybe today you're saying, 
I'm unfaithful. I'm, I'm ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I've turned away from the truth. But it's not too late. Every day you get a chance to make a change of thinking, to change your heart, to change your focus, change your perspective. Look up. Get your gaze back on Jesus Christ instead of yourself and the world around you or other people. As you see him and you're looking at him, you see him more as he's revealed experientially in your life, then trust him more. And as you're trusting him, let him change you so that you could be a faithful exception too instead of being a part of the general rule. And the general rule is that all seek their own. That's the general rule. So only then will you find God's favor or favorable evaluation on that day. You're going to face that evaluation too. Nobody's going to escape that. And it's not something we should take lightly. All right, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here this morning. For those of you who don't even know what that phrase means, it was it's sometimes referred to as communion. But it's the opportunity to be intentional about remembering the Lord's death until he comes. And it's, it's very symbolic. So in a sense, sometimes we use pictures, and Jesus used pictures too. He was sitting with his disciples. They were having a meal. He knew he was going to die. And he said, after I'm gone, these are the kinds of things that will regularly be in front of you at meals that you're going to participate and partake in. And the things that will be in front of you, I want you to just even use these everyday items as, re- as a remembrance or reminder of my sacrifice that's about to take place for you. And so when you're sitting there having a meal and the me- things that would be at every meal in those days were bread and, and wine uh, that they would drink because the water wasn't safe to, to drink as much, but in any event, I digress. He says, when you see these things at the supper table, the dinner table, the breakfast table, the lunch table, as you're breaking bread with each other, think of that bread that's being broken. Think of it as symbolic of my body which has been broken as a sacrifice for you. And as you drink that cup, you see the same color in there that's representative or symbol, it, it sort of reminds you of blood, that same, that same hue to, to an extent. Let that re, be a remembrance, a reminder of my blood that was shed for you. And so then there's this exhortation given by Paul where he's saying, Jesus is the one who said it, but Paul is, re- is repeating it, and he's saying, do this in remembrance of me. Do this as a remembrance of what I've done for you. Keep on doing this as a, as a remembrance. Now, you know, we've taken that historically, in, in the modern church, we've, we've taken that, or even the historical church has taken that as, uh, it developed eventually from just believers getting together and having meals together and breaking bread and, and remembering Christ every time they did that or as they did that, they would just be remembering what Christ had done for them, living in light of his sacrifice. It became something that we did a little bit more um, intentionally or, or maybe more, we, we separated it out from the rest of the meal, I guess, is what happened. And so that's what we do here on the first Sunday of the month is we take a little bit of time to pass around these symbols of Christ's body and his blood that was shed. And that's all there is to it. And some people make it more mechanical than that, but, I would, but you don't need to. There's no reason to. And so one of the things, though, I would encourage you, though, is this is intended to be an intentional remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done for you as he died in your place, as he shed his blood in your place, as he paid the debt that you owed. See, the Bible reveals that all men were born estranged from God as a result of being sinners. That sin had caused this estrangement between man and God because God was perfectly holy and righteous. And because he was holy and righteous, he couldn't have fellowship with sin. And if all men are sinners, 
And if every single person on planet earth is identified with a race of sinners, the race of Adam, and then every man himself sins at some point in time, and then frankly does so repeatedly, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, the Bible says. There is none who are even seeking after God. All are dead in trespasses and sins. All are described as alienated and estranged from God. All in need of being reconciled to God. All described as God's enemies. Because we're operating in rebellion and rejection of him. That's how we were in our natural state. God says, I didn't want to leave man estranged from me though. And the thing that was separating man from me was his sinfulness. And so I want to do something to take away that barrier of sin or that debt that is owed for sin. And the debt that's owed for sin, the Bible says, is death. Death meaning eternal separation spiritually from God. Yes, physical death, but then spending all of eternity forever separated from God. And so the Bible says that the wages of sin is death and all have sinned. So everyone's in the same predicament. But the message of Jesus Christ, the thing that we're celebrating is, why did Jesus come into the world? He came into the world to save sinners. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. He's the savior. He's saving people who have a problem, saving people who are drowning. If you don't see that you have a problem, you won't see that you need a savior. So Jesus came and he died on a cross not because of his sin, but because of our sin. He came as the substitute, the spotless, perfect Lamb of God, who would die as a substitute for the guilty. And who is the guilty? Every one of us. And so as he died in our place, as he died as our substitute, he paid a debt we owed. The value of his life was greater than the debt that was owed by our sin and everyone else's sin as well. So as he died, he bore all of our sin. All of our sin was placed on Jesus Christ, as he hung on the tree, as he hung on the cross of Calvary, my sin and your sin was placed on him so that he could die in your place. For what reason? So that you could have life, so that you wouldn't have to die. So if he pays the debt that you owe by becoming a substitute for you, and if he cried out, it is finished, meaning that all of the debt has been satisfied, what remains for you to pay? What remains for you to do if Christ did it all? If Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. The only response that we could have or we should have to that message is to say, thank you, I accept that, I'll put my trust in that. And that's what the Bible says over and over again. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes is not condemned but he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. The only thing that could keep you apart from God for all of eternity is not believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf. That's the only thing that could condemn a man or a woman at this point in time because the sin has already been paid for by the sacrifice of the Savior. So the gospel is said to be so simple that children could understand it. It's said to be childlike faith. I have a problem. God provided a solution to my problem through the, the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. If I would accept the gift that he offers by faith in his finished work on my behalf, I will be translated from a sphere of death into a sphere of life. I will be changed from being identified with Adam to being identified with Christ. I will be born again into the family of God. I will be sealed by the spirit of God. I will be adopted into the family of God and he will never let me go. And my only part in that is, will I put my trust 
in what Jesus Christ has already done for me. Now, why do I mention that before communion? This is supposed to be a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. If you've never accepted what Christ has done for you, what do you have to celebrate? This is a celebration of what Christ has done. What would you have to celebrate? Because in, in, in essence, you'd be stiff-arming Jesus Christ. You'd be saying, I don't need Jesus Christ. You'd be effectively rejecting Jesus Christ, so how could you be celebrating Jesus Christ? Now, if you're a believer, how could you be celebrating Jesus Christ if you have no interest in him? If you're not allowing him to have his way in your life? If you're resisting him at every turn? What, what about what he's done for you, what he's made possible in your life, could you possibly be celebrating if you want nothing to do with him? You don't want to involve him or include him or allow him to be a part of your life. And the answer is nothing. And I'd say take a minute just even as this is being handed out, and pray, Lord, change my mind. Get my focus back on you. Help me to trust you enough to lead and direct in my life. And so that's what we're going to do right now. I'd ask the elders to come forward, and we'll pass this out, and we'll celebrate this.